Now, if today someone has a a vision or a dream, and I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's certainly not normative. So these people go around saying they had a dream. They probably had indigestion or they were just trying to be a big shot and they've got a huge spiritual ego. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. As we near the end of our study in the Revelation, we see that Jesus, through the Apostle John, is not just interested in telling the readers of the things to come, but he is equally, if not more, interested in making sure that everyone makes a decision for Christ while they still have time. We saw in our last study that Jesus admonishes everyone to not put off salvation because a time will come when it's too late and they won't be able to make that decision. As we pick up today in verse 16 of chapter 22, Jesus takes two verses to establish his lineage. Let's join Dr. Brogy to discover the significance of this. There on your outline, God's last call to be saved. There are three truths about this call that I want us to ponder this morning. Number one, let's think about the promise of salvation. He's given a call to salvation, and the first aspect of this call to salvation concerns a promise. Look now, if you will, at verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Notice how Jesus describes himself as the root and the descendant of David and as the bright morning star. Now, that's important because the Messiah or the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew title that most of us know, the Christ, is called here the root and descendant of David. Now, that's a challenge. Like, what does that refer to? So hold your finger here, and we're going to do a little survey, because John assumes the first century reader understood this, and they did. Go to the book of Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 for just a moment. We're going to be in Genesis for for just a few minutes, so turn there. It will be worth your while to go there. Genesis chapter 12. 12. John assumes his reader knows something about this truth called the root and the descendant of David. God had already revealed right after Adam sinned that man could not save himself, that fig leaf religion, where man through his own effort tries to cover his shame, is not sufficient, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so God establishes the principle of the need for blood, and he gives a promises, a promise of what we call the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel in Genesis 3 of a Savior. And he begins to unfold that salvation in the book of Genesis. And here in Genesis chapter 12, we discover God making a covenant, a deal, a promise, an agreement with Abraham. And he enters into this agreement, and he gives Abraham some rock-solid promises. Look at verse 2, Genesis 12. God says, and I will make you, you Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What a wonderful promise. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. Now, remember, Abraham is 75 years old when God makes this promise, and he's childless. And yet God promises in verse 2, I will make you a great nation. And indeed, the Hebrew people to this day are a great nation. 
We hear about them almost every single day in the news and not by accident. And he says in verse three, I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And indeed, the Jewish people have been blessed and they are going to be blessed in the coming days in a very, very special way when they acknowledge that Yeshua is the Messiah. But God also tells Abraham that he'll be a blessing to others. He says here at the end of verse three, and in you, and you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's my family, that's your family, that's every family on the face of the earth can be blessed through the Jewish people. Now, I want you to know that Abraham is a blessing to me today. You say, why is he a blessing to you? Well, number one, his people, the Jewish people, gave us this book that we are reading. Every single book of the Bible was written by a Jew. God gave us this book through his people. Paul in Romans 3, when he's dealing with the unbelief of the Jewish people in chapter 2, and he says, then what advantage has the Jew? And he'll, he'll answer his own question. Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They gave us the Bible. God entrusted his holy, infallible word to the Jewish people. But I also am blessed in that my Messiah came from the Jewish people. I was talking to a few young men recently, and they were speaking rather disparagingly of the Jewish people. And I said, did you know Jesus was a Jew? Hmm. Most anti-Semites are so ignorant, they don't even know that the Savior of the world is a Jew in his humanity. Jesus came from the Jews. That's why he told the woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. What a blessing Abraham has been and continues to be. And here we are, 4,000 years later, still talking about this fellow. So we know the Messiah is going to come from one of Abraham's descendants. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 21. Go forward a few pages to Genesis chapter 21 for a moment. If you remember, by this time, Abraham had Ishmael by Hagar. But then later, he had the miracle baby, Isaac, and God reaffirms his covenant, not with Ishmael, but with the son of promise known as Isaac. Here in Genesis 21, if you remember, um, Hagar is living under the same roof with uh, Sarah, and they got this boy, Ishmael, and there's all this conflict in the home, and Sarah has kind of reached the limit, and she comes to Abraham and she says, they gotta go. Hagar and Ishmael need to go. And so Abraham is facing one of the most difficult decisions of his life. Should he make Sarah face reality and learn to live with Hagar and Ishmael? Or should he consent to her request? Well, he doesn't have to figure it out because God answers it for him. Look at chapter 21 here in verse 12. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. God knew better than Abraham because God knew it was impossible for both women and both children to live under the same roof and for his purposes ultimately to be accomplished. So God says, listen to the voice of Sarah. Now, the first time he listened to the voice of Sarah, he went into Hagar, 
and they had Ishmael. And because of that decision, there is the Arab-Israeli conflict to this day. It has been a constant conflict since Hagar, who gave him Ishmael, who in turn, Ishmael had 12 children that gave us the Arab nations of the world. Constant conflict. But God this time wants him to listen because Sarah is absolutely right. And I know when many of us read something like this, it's somewhat startling. I mean, from Hagar and Ishmael's perspective, it seems rather unfair because it seems like Hagar didn't really have a choice and Ishmael didn't ask to be born. And it's somewhat understandable why he is jealous and as a teenager. But think your way through this. While Sarah's attitude was understandable, it certainly was not commendable. And so why does God take Sarah's side? Look at verse 10. First, Sarah was right when she said in verse 10, drive out this maid and her son. For what reason? For the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. Sarah knew that Isaac and Ishmael couldn't both be heirs. And the intense conflict had been growing. And according to this chapter 21, 9, it was a habit. It was ongoing by the tense that's used. And God had dictated that it's going to be through Isaac that the son of promise will come. Now, that doesn't mean that Ishmael died and went to hell. And some people have taught that from Romans 9. But the theme of Romans 9 is not God choosing one person to go to heaven and the other to go to hell. He's dealing with nations and the people that will come from each of these sons. So whatever Sarah tells you, for through, listen to her, because through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Now, that does not mean, again, that God loves one and hates the other. You think God gave Abraham this son, whom the Bible says he loved Ishmael. This man who is the father of the faithful, that he trained him up to help fuel the flames of hell, I don't think that for a moment. And people who've come to that conclusion have come to a sloppy interpretation of the Holy Scripture. Verse 13, and, and of the son of the maid, God promises, I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. God promises, if you read the whole chapter, to bless Ishmael. And again, he ends up having 12 sons, and he makes him a mighty nation as well. But God, for his sovereign purposes, to bring the Messiah, had to choose one of these boys. And in the providence of God, he chose the miracle baby, who, of course, becomes a type of Christ. Abraham has a baby who is called his only begotten son. And the phrase monogene, only begotten, is only used of two people in Scripture, Isaac and Jesus. Now, they're only begotten for different reasons, but they're both miracle babies. Abraham's body is as good as dead as is Sarah's, but God gives them a miracle baby. Now, turn to chapter 26, a few more pages. Chapter 26, there's a reason in this madness, so stay with me. Chapter 26, Abraham, by this time, is dead. Chapter 25 says he was 175 years old when he died. And notice what God promises Isaac in Genesis 26 in verse 3, God says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Now, certainly a major reason that God had Moses write this was to remind the people in his generation of just how faithful and unchanging he is. 
God made a covenant promise to Abraham and he repeats it to Isaac concerning a piece of property that today we call Israel. Remember, Moses comes 400 years after Abraham is born. And centuries later, he is reminding the people who've been delivered out of Egypt that God is faithful. Now look at chapter 26 in verse 4. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. Sound familiar? And will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Not only does God give a promise to the land, but again, he repeats the promise that through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So how is that going to happen? How will all the peoples of the world be blessed through the Jews? Because as Jesus again told the woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. And just as God made his promise to Abraham in a place called Shechem, Remember, Abraham left Ur of Chaldee, not even knowing where he was going, but he believed that God is faithful, that God would show him. He said, go to the place I'll show you. His path is recorded. He walks over 1,100 miles, and then God appears to him, and God hadn't even given the man direction, and he comes to this place called Shechem. Last year, I stood over a hillside and looked at Shechem. Shechem is an important place because that was the place that Abraham first came when he came into the Holy Land, as we call it today, and as God calls it. It's the place, too, where Joseph is buried when they said, when Joseph said, bring my bones into the promised land and bury me, there is his grave. And about 50 yards from his grave is Jacob's well, a well that Jesus met a woman of Samaria. And so he comes all the way to Shechem, and God gives a, a promise, and God is repeating the promise here. So don't forget that what happens in Genesis 25 is given by direct revelation. Go back to chapter 25 for a moment, verse 23. If you remember, uh, Isaac and Rebekah have some babies. We call them twins. And God gives a divine sonogram. Look at 25, 23. The Lord said to her, to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, if she had gone to an obstetrician of that day, had they had one, or maybe a midwife, the midwife would have just said, you know, you've got twins, and they're just very active, and that's about all the midwife could say. But God gives a divine sonogram here. He reveals prophetically sound doctrine and theology, two nations are in your womb. One, as you know, was named Jacob. The other, as you know, was named Esau. And two peoples will be separated from your body. God was prophesying something concerning these two sons and that Jacob is going to be the progenitor of the Jews. And some years later, if you remember, God renamed Yaakov Yitzrael, Israel. He calls him Israel. He gives him a covenant name. And he has 12 sons that form the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Esau, in turn, also becomes a great nation Furthermore, we're told, and one people shall be stronger than the other. And indeed, the Jews were stronger than the Edomites. Those are the descendants of Esau in Scripture. And the older shall serve the younger. That is, Esau and his descendants would serve Jacob and his descendants. 
And of course, we've already seen in the Revelation when the Jews flee into the wilderness, they'll still be serving the Jews and that they'll provide protection for them as they go into the wilderness where the Edomites are. And Esau and his descendants are going to serve Jacob as in his descendants. Now, beginning in chapter 28, go over another page or so, Genesis chapter 28. Again, we're going somewhere with this. God meets Jacob, who's given the promise that came from Isaac, that came from Abraham. He meets him in a place called Bethel. To capture the context, uh, let's pick it up in verse 12. And he, Jacob, had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. So he has this dream, but it's no ordinary dream. It's a direct revelation from God. Now remember, before the canon of Scripture was completed, God often spoke through direct revelation. At this point, the first word of Scripture had not yet been penned by Moses. So God spoke in many portions in many ways. And God spoke sometimes in dreams, not just to believers, but to unbelievers. Remember earlier in Genesis 20, Abimelech has a dream about Abraham's wife, Sarah. He pinned her off, not as his wife, but as his sister. And, uh, and then in Genesis 41, if you remember, Pharaoh has a dream that Joseph has to interpret. Nebuchadnezzar, also a pagan Babylonian, he's later converted, but uh, as a pagan, he has a dream. And if you remember, Daniel had to interpret it for him. But God also gave dreams to believers, even in the New Testament time frame. Joseph received a dream telling him that Mary's conception was supernatural conception. And then some time later, he was warned by God, the scripture says, in a dream. Now, if today someone has a vision or a dream, and I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's certainly not normative. So these people go around saying they had a dream. They probably had indigestion or they're just trying to be a big shot and they've got a huge spiritual ego because we have a completed canon of scripture. It's not impossible but it's not typically probable. And certainly if someone has a vision or a dream today, and by the way, every single cult in the world today is typically built on some vision or some dream, some extra revelation. And if the vision or dream that one has doesn't coincide with scripture, it is to be rejected. We'll talk more about that as we come to the end of Revelation. Now, if you go to Israel today, Bethel is a great place to visit. I've only been there once, but it's a class A geographical spot. Sometimes you, you go to a place and, well, happened somewhere around here, or we're not even sure if it happened here, but like that happened in Bethel. And of course, Jeroboam later on, when he wants to institute a false system of worship, he sets up two centers of paganism, one in Bethel, the place where Jacob had his dream, you might as well pick a religious spot. And then for convenience, people who live further north, one in Dan, Dan and Bethel. It's an amazing place. I've only been there once. But I want you to see what happened when he has this dream because what he happened to him there to Jacob in New Testament terminology, we would say he was born again. Three important features in Jacob's dream. First, he sees a ladder. And the Bible says its foot is from the earth with its top extending to heaven. Second, the Bible says here he sees angels ascending and descending on this ladder. And third, at the top of the ladder, he sees God himself. 
Now, I'm not going into a lot of detail on the dream, but if you're interested in studying it, download the STS app. Maybe that sermon will be uh, useful to you. It's an hour-long sermon. But we do know, number one, that the latter is not the Roman Catholic Church, as they say. If you were here on Wednesday night, we learned that the Roman Catholic Church says that salvation is uniquely through them. And they argue that the church is the latter and that the only way for you to get to heaven is through the Roman church. Look, salvation is not in the Catholic church or the Baptist church, or the Presbyterian church or the Methodist church or any other church. It's in the Lord Jesus, not in some institution. He is the way to heaven. And we also know that this is not a picture of the pilgrim's pathway to heaven, that we are to climb and walk. And so there's a song a lot of you sung as children, we are climbing Jacob's ladder. It has absolutely nothing to do with this section of Scripture. How do I know? Put out in the margin next to verse 17, John 1, 47 to 51. John 1, 47 to 51. If you think it might be helpful, listen to that message I have in the Gospel of John. The latter here is not some mystery. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And the Lord Jesus identifies himself as the latter to Nathaniel. He is the one who bridges heaven and earth. And it's through him that we experience all of the blessings that God gives us. But I want to focus here on the covenant that's make it mentioned here by God in verse 14. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and the north and the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, we've already studied this promise. First to Abraham, then to Jacob, and now to Isaac. And it's a threefold promise concerning a land, a nation, and a blessing. And we've seen that repeated in each situation. So God made a promise to Abraham, then he makes a promise to Isaac, then he makes it to Jacob, and through Jacob's lineage, the Messiah is going to come. Oh, good, but which dimension of his lineage? Because he has 12 sons. So which of the 12 sons will the Messiah come through? Well, fast forward to Genesis 49. By the way, when, when God meets Moses in Exodus 3, he identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because of this marvelous covenant that God made. Genesis 49, if you remember, God has already renamed Jacob Yitzrael. He has 12 sons, but to which son will the promise of the Messiah be passed? Well, Jacob, he's sick, he's on his deathbed, and one by one, we are told in verse one, and Jacob called his sons and said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Now, as you read this chapter, it contains blessings given to each son along with prophecies that deal with the last days. Three times in verse 28 of this chapter, we're told that Jacob's words were a blessing to, his, a blessing to his sons. But they're more than a blessing. There's a prophecy. Remember, prophecy is history pre-written. And he goes all the way to the last days, to the final days in human history. This is the first of 14 times the expression, the last days is used in the Old Testament. And in each occasion, it's connected with the Messiah and his coming to the earth. Now we're told in verse 2, gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. 
Jacob is going to give a prophetic blessing to each of his sons. And what is remarkable is that though the Bible says his eyesight is dim, his body is worn out, his mind is crystal clear. He recalls, of course, each son's name. He recalls their history, what they had been like, and what plans God has for them. Listen to Yitzrael. He uses his covenant name that God had given him after he had become no longer self-centered, but God-centered where he was broken. Listen to Israel, your father. He is saying, what I'm about to tell you is not from my clever, ambitious nature, but it's from the new man that God has made me. And our interest, again, is trying to learn which of the sons does God carry the covenant blessing on. Well, look in verse 8. Judah, you are whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah had prevailed. He had some problems in the beginning. He became a godly man. And so leadership is given over his brothers, his enemies, and over his father's children. And prophetically, there's a whole sermon in this, and I have one on it if you're interested. The Messiah will come through the tribe of Judah, and there'll be three groups of people that will acknowledge the lordship of the Messiah. The Jews, his brothers according to the flesh, the Gentiles who have constant hostility towards him, and we will see even at the end of the time all of the nations, meaning all the goyim, all of the uh, Gentile nations of the world will go against Jesus, and the church, his father's children. Judah is a lion's whelp, verse 9. You know what a whelp is? It's the young of a, a dog or a wolf or a lion. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, it's technically feminine in Hebrew, who shall rouse him? Now, the ESV actually does a great job. Usually, they, ESV is a great translation. But they really pick up the fine nuance here. Let me read the ESV. Rarely do they supersede the NASB, but they do here. The ESV captures the fine nuance of the Hebrew here. It says, Judah is a lion's cub. That's what a whelp is. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness, it's feminine, who dares rouse him. So Jacob compares Judah, notice, to a lion's cub, a lion, and a lioness. No one is going to challenge a lion's cub with all of its new strength or a lion who is king, much less a lioness who's going to protect her young. And Judah is telling Jacob that his people would be the royal lion. As the lion is king among the beasts, no one is going to tamper with Judah. And so the Spirit of God is prophetically beginning to unfold further. And again, this is a sermon in itself, and I have it, and I walk through all the fine points, but I'm just trying to give us the broad strokes this morning. Praise and preeminence should have been given to Reuben, but Reuben didn't get it. Why? Because he gave it up for a half hour of sex. So God gives it to Judah. When we conclude our message, God's last call to be saved, we'll see how Jesus calls both Jews and Gentiles alike to partake of his free gift of salvation. To listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV71. 
And if you can help support Search the Scriptures with a one-time or recurring gift, please use the Search the Scriptures app or navigate online to searchthescriptures.org and click the Give button or call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife Audrey's in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our message, God's Last Call to be Saved. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. <music>